join me in prayer. God, you are gracious and merciful. You're kind and loving. You're just and holy. You're compassionate. And God, you hate what is evil. You love what is good. And you love us, loving us despite our sin and loving us in a way that is displayed through the cross. Tonight, as we talk about an important topic, God, for those that listening are working through these issues, whether personally or because of a family member or friend, God, would they find your truth in a gracious way? God, would you give us all humility to stand upon what you call us to stand upon, but grace to stand upon it uh, as we should, not backing away from truth, uh, but being ever mindful of your grace in our life that calls us to leave sinfulness and cling to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so tonight, purpose, statement there. We are just going to walk through over the next hour or so. Um, a lot of material, leaving some of this for you to look at on your own. There's a reason it's a handout rather than us just talking. One, it keeps us on track, but two, what we don't get to, you've got an opportunity, or if we address something really quickly, you've got an opportunity to come back to it um, there. So I'm gonna walk through the key terms. Uh, there are, is a huge glossary uh, at the back. These key terms are defined there also. But I thought that for our conversation tonight, it would be helpful to look at those as we walk through the key terms, the key issues on transgender. Um, what does that involve? What does that mean? How can we think about that through a biblical theological lens? How can we try to begin to work through that in practical? We're going to get into some of the practical. You may have theological questions. You may have practical questions. We're building from terms to theology towards practice um, because practice needs to be informed by and driven by theology and not the other way around. Most of these definitions are from the Brown University LGBTQ Center, unless otherwise noted. So these are the way that people uh, would choose to define these terms that have a more progressive bent uh, than I tend to. So, uh, but I wanted to let them define as many terms as possible on their own basis and see how things are used. So tonight you're gonna hear phrases like assigned sex or sex at birth or assigned sex at birth. Their note, the process of sex designation. Uh, what happens when a baby is born? Does this look like a boy or girl? And it goes down. That is the assigned sex at birth. Um, as a pastoral note, we view this as identical. We're seeing where this is going. Identical to biological sex when accurately designated. Okay. Um, there's the term cisgender, abbreviated often as cis. Um, this is a person whose gender identity is aligned to what they were designated at birth based on physical sex, also known as a non-trans person. And as a note, this is beginning to be used in a pejorative manner. If you are cis, you are not cool, and you are suspect and maybe not a, a valid source of authority on the matter. Okay? Many times being used in a demeaning manner. Not always, but sometimes. All right, one of the big terms, and I think this is a very valuable term for us to, to think about and talk about, gender dysphoria. 
from Boston Children's Hospital on this one. Gender dysphoria occurs when there is a conflict between the sex you were assigned at birth. Notice the language there. You were not born that way. You were just assigned that way. Somebody else said it about you. You can see the bias of the language, and there's bias language in some of this. You were assigned at birth and the gender in with which you identify. This can create significant distress and make you feel uncomfortable in your body. People with gender dysphoria may want to change the way they express their gender. Okay, gender dysphoria, when there is discomfort between sex assigned at birth and what you feel about your gender. Big concept, valuable concept for us to talk about tonight. One that will be repeated regularly. Gender identity is an individual's internal sense of male, female, neither, something else. It's internal, it's not always visible to others uh, because it's an internal thing. They've separated gender from biological sex. There's heteronormativity, a lifestyle norm that insists on people falling into distinct genders, naturalizing heterosexual coupling, intersex. We'll talk about this more later. One that's born with sex chromosomes, external genitalia, and or internal reproductive systems not standard or normative for either the male or female. Non-binary is a gender identity that is neither male nor female. Gender identities that are outside or beyond the traditional concepts. Okay, rapid onset gender dysphoria is a controversial term. Medical news describes it as a sudden onset of gender dysphoria. Remember, that's a gap between what you were assigned at birth based upon uh, anatomy and what you are feeling in young adults that did not display signs of this in childhood. It's hypothesized that this might occur due to social influence from peer groups, social media use, in combination with limited coping mechanisms to deal with strong emotions. It's not deemed a scientific term. Many organizations oppose the term and studies that contributed to the term. Okay? By and large, this one is if you're a progressive organization, then you deny that this exists and you think that it's just a social construct created by uh, conservatives to further their agenda. Uh, is largely where that is there. But statistically, there is an astronomical rise in suddenly identified gender dysphoria, even more common amongst teenage girls. Um, by some studies, way, way, way more common amongst teenage girls. Okay, suicide ultimatum. I could have easily started tonight by saying, if you go, if, if you have a discussion for very long, about transgender issues, if you were to seek counsel regarding your child that feels as if their gender identity does not match their biological sex, that you will rapidly hear this phrase, would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? Seeking counseling, for one of your children or grandchildren or family members wrestling through gender dysphoria, it will not take long for you to essentially be given this suicide ultimatum. Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? And Preston Sprinkle in the book Embodied, this is a common counseling tactic. There's little scientific support for it. Um, We'll deal with this more later, Uh, but essentially When you control for the issues related to mental health in those that identify or sorry, in those that struggle with gender dysphoria and those that do not, there is very little suicide difference once you control for those 
that already have mental health issues. Okay, one of the things that will come up in numerous scientific studies, both from the progressive viewpoint and the conservative viewpoint, is the vast number of people that experience gender dysphoria that also have other, sorry, that also have multiple mental illnesses. So when suicide rates are incredibly high across those with mental illness, when you combine that with gender dysphoria, which is likely, which frequently corresponds also with people that have some versions of mental illness, it is unsurprising that you have that. But it sounds very convincing. Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? A great chapter uh, in Sprinkle's book. All right, I got to speed up. Trans. This is an umbrella term used with a star or an asterisk. I didn't put that every time in the, in the packet. That's like you start with that and then you put the asterisk and then you can put whatever you want to after it. Okay, that's essentially what it means. Um, a trans man. This is hard to keep in mind. Anytime you see the word trans put before something, think transitioned to something. Okay, so trans man would be transitioned to male. Trans female transitioned to female. Okay, trans before means they trans to that new term. Okay, so there you go. Some works that we reviewed and recommended, uh, God in the Transgender Debate by Walker. You get their background. I think it's helpful. I wouldn't hesitate to give it to somebody that is not affirming of the same position that we will share tonight. I think he does a pretty good job. By the way, none of these resources are the exact perspective that the three of us would share, particularly in some nuanced ways. And you'll see later in the packet a ways in which that even the three of us cannot perfectly agree on how to address a few things. So all of these are not like the Bible. We agree on the Bible. Okay. All of these are helpful, but we're not like, hey, this is the work and it is perfect. Strange New World. This is a, Jacob, this one's yours. Well, so Strange New World uh, is one of my favorite books on the subject, at least, by Carl Truman. Um, I brought it with me so you could see. If you wanted to borrow it and read it, I have a copy of it. It's a layman version of the big version that Carl Truman has. Um, so it depends how studious you want to be. Um, you could get the big version or you could get the smaller version. Uh, but it's just a, a brief history of ideas and how we got to where we're at, um, where we're at today with um, just questions of identity and gender and uh, things like that. So I would highly recommend those. All right, embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Um, takes a, a, a tone that I didn't know where it was going, but it turns out to be a really good book. Uh, he does not affirm transgender ideas, but he does try to use this phrase often. Um, you know what they say when, uh, when you've met one trans person? You've met one trans person. Don't assume of all what you know of one. Consider individuals individually. And I think Sprinkle's tone is great, really valuable, uh, particularly the section, the appendix matter, the back matter in the relevant studies on transgenderism, mental health, and suicide are huge um, for us to be familiar with and to recognize the gaps in the study where they are. Sprinkle's book's a good resource. Um, video blogs, you've got two uh, back matter packets attached in. 
uh, from Brad Hambrick, who's a counselor in North Carolina, and a YouTube video of an audio transcript, about an hour on that. Some other resources, uh, really quickly, Gabriel Kuby's book is from a conservative Catholic, looks at the global influence on all sorts of issues. Deborah So's resource is, let me be very clear, is coming from a non-evangelical perspective, deeply non-evangelical perspective, but writes in a fascinating way about the science behind it. She comes from a radical feminist perspective who spent her entire life studying sexuality um, and weird things that people like to do. And she writes in a way to describe the social pressure and scientific pressure to conform with the uh, political ideology behind the transgenderism stuff. So neat one if you want something from a different perspective. Uh, I won't, you've got written up stuff on Branch and others. Uh, Sam, anything to add on Branch? Are you good on what's written? Uh, just that uh, he addresses, uh, I got a little one here. He, he addresses a lot of the scientific information um, after going through the history of transgenderism and the way in which they use language. A lot of the time they will be trying to support um, uh, leading towards gender reaffirming surgery with a scientific basis. He evaluates uh, these things from a factual standpoint, as well as tries to resolve um, the theological implications of transgenderism in light of the scriptures, and uh, gives a significant portion to how uh, families ought to deal with children who are facing gender dysphoria issues and transgenderism issues. And uh, his tone is factual and fair, and it's clear he has a pastoral heart, uh, desiring that these people uh, would repent and believe and no longer be afflicted by this uh, ideology, and gives you probably a lot of teeth, at least, to deter um, this great physical evil uh, that's luring many. So I would recommend uh, fully. Now we're in the part of the packet where we're going to build a biblical theological foundation to this topic, right? And so this is very important. Uh, this is what we would say we believe and confess as believers and believers here in uh, Springfield, First Baptist Church of Springfield, Virginia. We want to know what the Bible says on the topic. And so we obviously need to go to God's word in order to uh, understand what it says on the topic. Uh, so that's where we're going to go, and then uh, Sam will uh, talk a little bit more um, on how uh, this has gotten distorted a bit. So if you're following along with me, you could just see uh, creation and fall. That's a good place to start, right? In the very beginning. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made all things, and he made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. Uh, and so right away in the very beginning, you see gender. You see a man and you see a woman. God created them distinctly, uh, man and woman. Um, because God is creator, right, we recognize he has authority over all things. Uh, he is sustainer. He has orchestrated and designed all things for a specific purpose. And we see that then uh, displayed and worked out through scripture and ultimately it comes to the purpose of us to glorify God and enjoy him forever and we glorify God and enjoy him forever by living holy lives for him right so we have to start there 
Um, and you could see after I quote Genesis 131, uh, he created all things and he saw that it was good that he made male and female. And I wrote here, however, due to sin, man became lost, blind, and spiritually dead. They are no, uh, they no longer know who they are or who they were because they turned away from the one who gave them life. Right? So this is where we see a lot of um, the confusion, a lot of just um, looking for identity and purpose because it's a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So my question here for you guys, uh, how can man find who they are again? So it's really just asking the question, who am I? And that's the ultimate question, I think, that's really trying to be asked here in this type of discussion. And there are many false um, suggestions that have been given here. So that's really what we're looking at. It's, it's very much an identity question. And so we first, as we continue this, we have to recognize that God has authority, right? God reveals his authority to mankind as author, creator, sustainer of all things through his son, Jesus Christ. From his authority, we find out how we are to fulfill our purpose in life. He tells us who we are, right? We are image bearers. And he tells us then what we are to do. And he can tell us that because he is God, right? He is creator. And so what does he say? Christ says here, right before he ascends back up into heaven in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority, right? There's the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our identity is given by God, that we are image bearers, that we are made to image him, represents him here on earth uh, as man and woman. Um, and what are we to do? We are to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. And it really is wrapped into our biblical identity. Who does God say we are? This is our task as believers, right? We recognize God is love as well. If you're continuing, just following along with the note sheet here with me, <clears throat> God's author authority is not abusive, um, but instead it is loving. It's not just loving, but it is, but he is love itself. God's authority is what defines what love is. Right, because God is creator of all things, all things flow and come from him. And we see in First John where it says that God isn't just loving, but he actually is love. Uh, you, you could see that right here in First John chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might love through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we see the ultimate expression of God's love, right, is ultimately found in the gospel message of the father sending his son to the world 
to die for us so that we may not stay in our sins, but be transformed out of our sins, right? So loving, to be loving is not to just be affirming of each other in our sins, but it's to transform us, to look at, to make us look more like the image of the Son, right? Um, and we are to do that, and we are to help others do that um, as we share the gospel, as we fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, you see Romans twelve nine. it says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So again, to love others, and this is really crucial to this discussion, does not mean we will just affirm everything um, a person does, believes, thinks. We are to still hate what is evil. And how do we know what is evil, what is good? We have to look to God's word, right? We have to see who God is and what God says about these things. Um, just continuing here. Uh, how does the world today define love? And how is it different from God's definition of love? Does anyone want to try to take a crack at that? So you kind of hit on it when you were talking. So the, the world, at least the certain parts of the world, consider love like to accept and affirm, and to like to to even say something that denies who they think that they are is a form of violence and hatred towards that person. So it's the opposite of that. Everything that person says they feel that they are. Exactly. So we are, as believers, to speak truth in love, right? And if you didn't speak truth at all, you're not being loving either. Um, we're supposed to do it with gentleness, right? Um, but we're supposed to speak truth in love. And ultimately, that is to share the gospel with others, is to share the great, or to go out and do the Great Commission, right? God has commanded us to go out and share the gospel and baptize and to teach. And he does that out of his authority. Um, so, and that's who we are as Christians. That's who are, makes up our identity. All right, um, just moving along, because there's a lot still to talk about. True purpose and identity and identity can only come from the Lord because he alone is the author, creator, sustainer of all things. I've used that language quite a bit already here. Uh, true joy can come by following Christ and listening to what he says man is, right? We, again, have to go to um, what God says, since he is the author of all things, and he is, um, has authority as a result. So, who does God say we are? What are we made to do? Uh, just to move it along quickly, uh, God says that we are men and we are women. Uh, in the very beginning, God created that way um, so that we as we act out a biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, we could honor and glorify the Lord. Um, and what are we to do? We are to go out and glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Right? That's who we are. That that's what we are to do as believers. Genesis one twenty seven, right? So this is just going back to what we looked at earlier. God created man in His own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's, again, speaking to our purpose and what we are to do as believers. Uh, so to finish up this section, 
if believers in Christ only have their true identity restored through Christ, right, when we become saved, then what about unbelievers? What is the identity of those who do not know the Lord? And I want us to look at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 for this. And that's actually the text that you have on your note sheet here. Um, so Romans chapter 1, verse, we'll start in verse 21 and work through verse 32. Uh, does anyone, actually I'll just read this for us. It says, for following along, for although they knew God, this is referring to all of those who aren't believers, right? Uh, they knew God through creation is how this text is starting. For although they, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, uh, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So right away, you can start filling in your blanks here a little bit. Uh, who are unbelievers? What is the identity of those who do not know the Lord? Well, they are, as the text says, this might sound harsh, but this is what the text is saying. They are futile in their thinking. They are foolish in their hearts. And then ultimately, a third one, they are fools. They have become fools. Why? What does the text say? Because they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So let's continue reading the rest of the text. Therefore, God gave them up to the, up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies and among, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up uh, to dishonorable passions uh, for their women exchanged natural relations for those uh, that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see a fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Uh, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceits, maliciousness. They are, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, uh, insolence, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, uh, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, Heartless, ruthless, though they did not, though they know God's righteousness, righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, if you're filling in the last fill in the blank, therefore, God gave them up to their lusts and dishonorable passions. Guys, this is why the gospel is so important, and this is why. The gospel transforms lives to make us look more like Christ. It takes us out of this dead, sinful state so that we could image God and fulfill the purpose of life. So, 
one of the phrases that uh, I would add to from verse 28 is God also not only gives us up to dishonorable passions, but to a debased mind that pursues things that it should not pursue, but also thinks in ways that are almost unthinkable with the blinding of logic. And one of those examples, Sam can kind of walk us through. Yeah, so this is uh, a profoundly theological um, experience talking about these issues because they're not simply matter. Um, th- uh, we're not just uh, atoms bouncing off of each other. Um, this is a theological treatise of the post-truth world, uh, soon to be the post-gender world. And as the church, we are probably five or less years out from this being a, another mainstay of uh, uh, the apostasy of denominations. We are fully aware that there are many, probably the majority, of Christian denominations in America at this point are affirming of homosexual uh, clergymen and union. And we are not far off from uh, full acceptance of all manner of transgenderism. And it will not be shocking to anyone um, if we have some supposed clergymen advocating for uh, pedophilic behavior uh, because of these same uh, foundational issues that they are dealing with. And so I'm going to use a term uh, that's broader than just trans because it engulfs all of the alphabet that they invent uh, day to day using the term queer. And the way they use uh, the term queer is in three modes. Sometimes they just describe it um, as this big umbrella term that encompasses all manner of deviancies. Um, Other times it is a transgressive action where they are using a term to reclaim a, a term like the term queer. Uh, you, I, in my readings, I've heard that they've queered queer by reclaiming it for themselves. It was formerly a pejorative, and now it is a, a proud term for them that they will use. So if they are queering something, they are reclaiming it for their own ends. But more importantly, um, the way I'll be using it is the third way that they use it, and probably the way in which you're most uh, familiar with at this point. It will be an uh, erasing and erasure of boundaries. Um, What they mean is um, they've grounded the term queer in the academic discipline um, of queer theory, which uh, challenges and disrupts, I'll read uh, straight through this, the traditional notions that sexuality and gender identity are simply questions of scientific fact or that such concepts can be reduced to fixed binary categories such as homosexual versus heterosexual, or female versus male. And as such, the third definition of queer refers to erasing or deconstructing of boundaries with respect to these categories of sexuality and gender. And as early as the early 2000s, we have uh, uh, supposed Christian theologians and pastors writing theological works based off these premises and claiming to be in line with God's desires and will. How do they arrive at such a a conclusion? Well, number one, it will be their source of authority. So uh, if you were here for any of the growth institutes that I dealt with, I was dealing with uh, scripture, tradition, scripture, and authority. Um, These are the issues that we are uh, downstream 
of this new foundation in a post-truth world to soon to be a post-gender world. And so queer theology, um, they do draw upon the four traditional uh, sources of authority, uh, scripture, uh, tradition, reason, and experience. But the methods in which they engage with them are highly suspect, and I'll just describe them broadly as much as I can. Um, if you ever want to be very vexed on a day, uh, read through some of this stuff, and you will be flabbergasted and appalled and probably righteously angry if you cherish God's word in any meaningful fashion. Um, however, so the refrain I use uh, for this is, Queer theology draws upon scripture, that is the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, in creative ways. What do I mean by creative ways? Well, it is simply the application of a worldview that is foreign to the scriptures themselves to read into the scriptures, whatever they choose. And uh, we've seen this uh, tons of times, uh, first with the homosexuals, and soon you'll see more and more. It would be like the instance of, let's go broadly okay so we believe that god exists in trinity he exists in three persons in perfect community for everlasting uh, uh uh eternity past and eternity future always in loving communion therefore we can have multiple sexual partners in one relationship because they exist in three persons it would be something like that absolutely foreign to the scriptures absolutely foreign to the ethic of the scriptures and of christ and this is the, the level of argumentation that's used constantly um, developing these supposed queer theologies. So um, they quickly moved to tradition, which I find that even funnier because we don't have any guys uh, talking about this stuff until probably the 50s in America, that is. And doing these types of engagements with the scriptures and then uh, the queer theologians now can say, see, now we have precedent historically because someone mentioned it erroneously in the past that we can draw upon Christian tradition because you can find all manner of sexual ethics that are opposed to scripture because someone said they're so. Um, the, the two that are most important in developing of the queer theologies are reason, supposed, and experience. So when we say reason, we would uh, probably agree that it's like our ability to know God and um, through observation of the world and the use of philosophy. We can know that God exists and that he communicates and that we can understand something that he is saying. They do not mean that primarily when they use the term reason, what they normally mean is a worldview that is in opposition to the scriptures worldview applied, like I said before, the way in which they deal with the scriptures. So in the case of theologians who are arguing for um, LGBTQ plus um, identities and uh, affirmations in the scriptures, um, what they are uh, doing when they reason is they are applying queer theory, queer theory as their mode of reason. So I'll give you a quick uh, setup here. So um, we have two minutes. two minutes, okay. In addition to uh, challenging, uh, yeah, so let's, uh, let me get you here. Yeah, so queer theory also draws upon reason as I wrote here. This is our ability as human beings to know God 
where theologians have increasingly drawn upon reason in the form of post-structuralist, so post-truth philosophy, that is, queer theory, in constructing their queer theologies. Um, so it's this application of foreign ideologies upon the scriptures to produce the results that are desired. Isn't it amazing they can always find what they're looking for? Um, but lastly, experience. Experience is probably the greatest one and will be the biggest uh, probably uh, gray area when dealing with any gender issues with any person. It will be their experience. Um, queer theology draws upon experience um, as a source for theology. So their experience will trump scripture, tradition, and reason. Um, this is not solely in uh, queer theology's camp, however, uh, is certainly utilized by them uh, constantly. But uh, in the case of other contextual theologies, I'll just read straight through. Um, queer theology is premised upon the belief that God acts within the specific context of our lives and experiences, which we would agree, as long as they're tethered to the truth of the scriptures, despite the fact that LGBT lives and experiences have been excluded from traditional theological discourse, if by that you mean affirmation, sure. Uh, indeed, queer experience is an important, if not critical, source for doing theology from a queer perspective. So what they mean here is their experience as a queer person is the determinant factor in how they do theology, is their perspective, their sexual preferences, their uh, sexual confusions, or their sexual desires, will hold the greatest sway in their theological convictions. Um, so let me blast through this in like a minute and a half to get through the love stuff, okay? So uh, the, the way we will see and the way love will be touted to us is exactly this. Before I said, the, the task of queer theory is the dissolution of the gender binary, to get completely rid of it, is that uh, love dissolves existing boundaries, whether they're boundaries that separate us from uh, other people, separate us from uh, perceived uh, notions of gender and sexuality, or they separate us from God. You have people who claim Christians who say, this is what separates people from God. It is boundaries, i.e. gender binary. This is what sin is in this worldview. It is the gender binary, God's good created order for human beings, man and woman. And the only way to be reconciled to God in this way is to question that or actively seek to, to deconstruct it. And if you don't do that, then you are in danger of hell. We've heard this refrain constantly in our modern culture. If you do not bend the knee, if you don't uh, assent to this, if you don't do uh, the religious rites to say how much you agree with this, then you are anathema. This is a gospel contrary to the one preached in the scriptures. Um, and this has produced a, an unprecedented identity crisis wherein your entire identity, your whole being is tethered to uh, whatever sexual preference, whatever sexual ideology you ascribe to. It is your personhood. And so any offense, any uh, disagreement with that is a personal attack, is a matter of life and death. 
And what you have is a convoluted uh, mess now where we have more than just gender ideology, but uh, we have uh, racial ideology at the highest level probably now, where you're basically saying, for you to understand who you are, you need to know every single uh, iota of what you could possibly be. Uh, so if me, it would be like, I am white, South Carolinian, uh, Irish descent, um, Christian, cisgendered, straight, which basically means I'm the most privileged person on earth, according to this uh, ideology. And therefore, I have a lot of explaining to do to the people who have uh, the opposite of this, who are the most oppressed class. And this is where the confluence of these uh, with uh, Marxist critical race theory comes into play, where they are building a cache of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I've been talking a while. Um, basically, I have all the power in my position. They have none of the power because of all of these categories they're in. That is the intersection of all of their oppression, and therefore I'm to be resisted and overthrown and then oppressed. Um, this is uh, gender queer theory comes directly from these, so you'll get a lot of overlap. But okay, um, I think we're good there. <laughs> I'll get you through that. We can come back to anything we need. So some deeper discussion on that. Not everything's at that high level. Uh, um, some people are blind to their theological assumptions. Others have deeply studied their theological perspectives. Uh, when you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. Okay. Um, implications, applications. I'm going to read through this for us uh, to save time, but, but I also think it's foundational and then do hit into the questions. So I think some of these books are helpful. As a church body, let's be, remind, be reminded of the truth of 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you know that the unrighteousness will not inherit kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, drunkards, greedy, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. Let's not approach this as if we are not all as believers. Every believer is simply a sinner, a former sinner that has been saved by grace. Remember that we were not decent sinners who helped ourselves. We were dead sinners rescued by grace. And therefore, a church should be the safest place, quoting Walker here, to talk about, to be open about, to struggle with gender dysphoria where people know they are loved, even if they are disagreed with. We can only, we're only firmly anchored and able to grow, share the gospel without being tossed about by every idea and argument from both conservative and progressive ends of the spectrum. If we're speaking the truth in love, neither is an optional bolt on to Christianity. Most of us default to one of those characteristics over the other, but it's upon us to show both. Practically, we need to remind ourselves and interact with others in light of God's authority God's love and our identity in Christ. So as a church, we need to remember God's authority over life and place ourselves under what he says in his word. We study the Bible to know what it means so that we can know how to apply it in our context. 
when what God calls right and good remains right and good, whether it is popular or not. We recognize the manner in which God displayed his love. Okay? I want you to think about the cross for a minute. The cross of Christ is God's non-affirming love in vivid display. The cross of Christ is God's non-affirming love in vivid display. Because it is at the cross that Jesus died, not for people that God affirmed, but that God describes as rebels, evil, stuck in sin. The very nature of God's love on display at the cross is a non-affirming love. So we start with God and not just ourselves. We start with his authority and we start with the fact that his love does not always say how you feel is good enough. Who you are on your own is good enough that looks at people in all of their brokenness and intervenes. Not a blind love, but an all-seeing love. Not an affirming of evil love. In fact, this, our sin is the reason for the cross. We must define love according to God's love instead of shout, settling for a shallow definition of love that simply affirms. We, and then building upon that, recognizing our identity in Christ as one's rescued from sin for a life of holy service according to the power of the Spirit. And discipleship's a lifelong journey. There are some disciples that struggle with different types of besetting sins. What some of you on one side of the room struggle with, others would look at me. I'd never think about struggling with that. Okay? Discipleship's a lifelong journey, surrendering to the Spirit's power to transform us into who God has created us in Christ to be. And that looks different for different people but it doesn't make sin not sin. Just because you struggle with something and it's harder for you on one area than another, somebody else doesn't make it not wrong. Okay, as parents, see the above first, start there, and then have an open dialogue. Open dialogue. Uh, you'll see some recommendations from Brad Hambrick later that basically suggest this isn't a one-time conversation and that the goal isn't to unpack all the information one time. And even at a church level tonight, we're packing in a ton of stuff. But open dialogue afterwards, ongoing dialogue in the future. Helping children recognize the binary nature of biological sex. But another thing that's important that Sprinkle does a good job with in his book is noting that so many of our gender stereotypes are gender stereotypes. That in previous centuries that boys wore pink and girls wore blue. Look back on some of the old presidents and their photos. And you may have some of them in your wallet with curly hair and long hair. Some things are cultural stereotypes. Um, that doesn't mean that a president that had curly hair and long hair that wore pink did not know their gender or their biological sex. Okay? Remind your children and us, we all need to be reminded that not everyone accepts God's authority. For teens, for others, standing upon this will often get you canceled by culture, by your friends. And others. And this is where it is valuable to have a church family that will come alongside you, stand, support you, pray for you, and encourage you, and find your help you remind yourself that your identity was never in those that would reject you because you did not share their views to start off with. 
questions uh, that we're just going to briefly walk through. What about those born intersex? Sprinkles book deals with this. There's supposedly a bunch of people when you read stuff, it's like, well, there's like 1.6% of people are born with intersex conditions. And 99% of those people never knew that they had those intersex conditions their entire life. Okay. Um, there's a variety of things that define somebody as intersex, but only like 1% of the 1% actually that are intersex actually have something that they recognize that they are unclear on. And the presence of that does not necessitate another gender or another sex category. Uh, another topic that comes up, hey, I think I've got a female brain stuck in a male body. Well, most of that actually involves an assumption on what a female brain is likes and is good at and does and what a male brain likes and is good at and does it's huge based upon gender stereotypes to some degree you could describe david in the bible as having this massive female brain composed poetry sat around and played with animals you know then you do see the manly side too so okay um, that we would normally describe as manly yeah so therefore david you could Take them however you want to on that one. Okay. So most of the studies on brain development are based upon gender stereotypes of what women are supposed to be good at and men are supposed to be good at. There's next to nothing about those studies that is absolutely conclusive, particularly in light of the neuroplasticity of the brain, which is a big word that basically means the more you use your brain to do something, the more that part of your brain grows to show that you're better at it and gets bigger. Similar to the fact that if I go downstairs and I work out or I do a bunch of push-ups, my muscles are going to start getting bigger and then I'm able to do more workouts and more exercises. So also your brain works the same way. So what you use it to do, it becomes better at and bigger at. So in light of that, it's unclear on that. Here's the fun topic on this one. Should we use people's preferred pronouns? You see our responses there. Jacob's no, because we're affirming a false sense of identity. Uh, me, I would prefer to try to use a name. I think both these guys would prefer to try to use a name. I, I would note that preferred pronouns can affirm false sense of identity, but so, but I'm still reluctantly willing to do so. I prefer and would request an opportunity to discuss why they chose those pronouns and how, when I say or use those pronouns, I don't mean to affirm something I disagree with. Okay. I'd prefer that opportunity may not get it. Um, and Sam so it's no, thinks it's a best practice. We do not have the identical opinion. We've spent an hour to two hours discussing this, working through this. Don't share the exact. We've worked through a lot of the same resources. This is not something that I think you have to agree exactly with us. I think there's some ways to be wrong on this, but I don't know that there is a one and only one right on this one. Um, but you need to know why you're doing what you're doing. So. We did manage to make it in time for some questions. So we've covered a ton of material. Uh, ongoing dialogue, absolutely. You're welcome to ask any one of us a question or a question for all of us. If it's just a general question, we may all three field it or one of us may choose to take it. But what do you want us to talk about? What do you want us to answer, restate, or clarify? And let's try to keep this out of the political field. Maybe from like a professional setting. So um, I think all of us are going to have different professions where we're going to be challenged with this, like addressing mm -hmm. pronouns, and it's going to get more and more of an mm -hmm. issue. 
Um, and as laws change, I guess we're going to be, yeah, I don't even know what the laws are now. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm in insurance, and today I went to D.C. to a broker summit, and they're like, made a like joke of it, you know, approaching different demographics and, you know, made for variety of reasons, but this, this was included. And they made a joke like, oh, it's okay if you forgot to use somebody's correct pronouns, you know, and so <laughs> it's like it's a category now of um, when you like protecting classes and so how do we, I, I know you guys don't have the right answer, <laughs> but what, you know, how are we supposed to so some of you in the very near future, if not already, will be able to be fired for using this wrong. Yeah. That, that is where this is headed. Um, and it will be uh, under hate speech to use a pronoun that does not correspond to their preference. Um, this is one of the reasons that I would say I would prefer, but I would not insist I don't think that this is a mandatory that you are bowing to an idol. Some of you may prayerfully work through in your job, in your field, and say, I'm not going to bow to the cultural idol of pronouns and uh, identifying with affirming identities that I do not agree with, that the Bible would not be okay with. Um, some of you may choose and prayerfully to work through that and face consequences for doing so. I don't think this is as explicit as that, but others would go and say, yeah, absolutely. You, you should be willing to lose your job over it. I don't think that the consequence of losing your job should be why you don't do it though. Right is right, whether or not it is costly or not. Um, but I think as words and phrases get used more, they begin to take on a less precise and affirming meaning. Um, so I don't know that you are necessarily, if everyone has to use that pronoun, I don't know that when you do it, that they're going to look and say, wow, I must be okay with God now. That person that loves Jesus used she or they for me. I must be okay with God. They've affirmed me. I don't think that in the coming culture that you run an incredible risk of deceiving someone as everyone begins to change the nouns that they use. Guys, any, y'all wanna weigh in on that one? Um, yeah, uh, I can't say for certain that I wouldn't feel um, the pressure if it was, if my job was on the line and I have to provide for my family. Um, I think the best Thing that you could probably do is try to avoid them as much as possible so to still engage um, with probably name preference and uh, what, I th what I think it'd be the end of the world if you succumbed in a high-pressure situation <laughs> um, once or twice probably not um, the reason why I stated the issue the way that I did it was uh, thinking evangelistically um, where we don't have to accept argument on terms that are untenable uh, to reason with someone um, about an issue like this. If it were essentially an ultimatum, you will use this, you will transgress, you will do this, 
or you will be fired. I would probably uh, have to say then I'm gone. Um, that would be the issue for me um, related to that because it's a strong enough issue. Um, I would be much more soft with an individual person if we're having a discussion about their transgenderism than if uh, my job was telling me uh, you will affirm this uh, thing that you don't agree with or suffer the consequences. Um, I think there is a path forward where if it was strong enough where they're going to force you to do so and you have the ability to change vocation, <laughs> um, you can tread water uh, until then. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just would say you have to pray a lot through it. And it's a good gospel opportunity to talk to um, different individuals about who God is, if they're willing to listen to you or not. Um, but yeah, it's a hard discussion. I do, so. I do see what you're saying, though, Jason. It's, it's likely the case that in the current cultural milieu, you'll get this a lot more from the leadership structures of businesses, and you'll have people who do not agree with having to implement them. And so they will tell you about it in the same way that uh, every teacher I ever had told us about various things in school that they did not enforce. And in a situation like that, I think that's net neutral for your position. Um, but yeah. Um, do we have a, another question? Yeah. <clears throat> so part of the challenge with anything that's outside of a norm is that it's easy to just reject what is normal. So people reject marriage for homosexual marriage or easy divorce or polyamory or whatever. And what I might hear from a young person today is like, why even bother with marriage? Like we're living together and like, what's the big idea? Similarly with gender, when it's kind of rejected, I think that part of God's response to that is, no, it's a good thing. It's a good part of creation. So what would you hope that members of First Baptist are showing forth what is the goodness of masculinity and femininity that we should be reminding the world that it is good. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, you pretty much hit it there. Uh, what we'll what you'll see more and more, especially if you deal with data on these issues of gender dysphoria, reassignment surgeries, and things like that, the aftermath is not good. It does not produce good in these people's lives. Uh, suicide rates virtually unchanged, if not increased, by post-op transgenders. That is not a good outcome. They're being offered something that does not give them what they're looking for. Um, and so the encouragement would be that your rejection of God's created order is also not good for you. It's not that just that you hate it for what it is but your current path will also lead you to destruction and many times at your own hand. Um, and talking about the goodness of God in um, created gender, male and female, he created them and both good. Um, one of the ways in which the, the article by Deborah So from her radical feminist perspective goes after this is uh, the ways in which it is destroying all that the feminists fought for about the goodness of actually being female. Um, so it's a unique perspective on that, uh, but a belittling of what it is to be female from the feminist perspective. So. Um, 
one of the things that I personally do is I don't focus on that part of their lives, you know, like, I think the more we spend, oh, this person is gay and we've got to talk to him, we've got to embrace him. No, I don't embrace him because he's gay. I embrace him because he's a child of God. And do that part where I think I think right now everybody's trying to jump on the bandwagon and be like, you know, we've got to address this. Well, yes, you do, but no, you don't. You know, you, you address the person in all the other aspects of their life. And now if it gets to where they want to discuss that with you, then you give them a biblical background. All right. So questions, because people are much more. This is why we started with identity. We're much more than our than our sexuality. One or two more questions at most before we wrap up. We can take things privately afterwards. How do you help someone who ends up with one of these in their family? How do you help somebody that? I have three yeah, children. Absolutely. They all go to church. Mm-hmm. Two of them, if it happened to them, they say, well, that's the way it is. But the two who grew up in this church and who are the most conservative have the child who changed their gender. And that child went to a Christian college and majored in biblical studies, and then she went to Fuller Seminary. I try to keep in touch, but she doesn't, or he doesn't. Yeah, this is a personal issue. This is a personal issue for almost all of us in the room. Um, prayerfully, graciously, lovingly, and not abandoning truth, not abandoning love, not abandoning, um, and yet not making that the only thing, as was noted a minute ago. Like, we're much more than, than our sexuality. Without my saying anything. Can tell by. Right. Just so do you have any recommendations for how to engage with, call them progressive Christians, when it comes to the, the apostate Christians that have embraced this ideology? My experience with them at work is they often know the Bible really well, and they use verses in ways that don't seem to make sense. Like the Gen, uh, 131, uh, man and woman, he made them. Well, they they read that as in he made them man and woman, right? So they use the Bible to, and the verses within it, support their kind of over. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is people abuse the Bible rather than trying to understand what the Bible say, says, which is why we start with the commitment here that we want to know what the Bible says in its context before we apply it to our context. When you start with the goal of reading something into a text, if you have enough text, you can read whatever you want to into a text. So a legitimate discussion about hermeneutics, uh, about the way that they want to be understood, uh, about those types of things, I think is valid. Um, but all too often, that is true. People are abusing the Bible to find it saying whatever they desire. And that's in us all. The reality is, that is within my own fleshly desires is to read the Bible for what I want it to say. And by God's grace, and only by God's grace, would I ever read the Bible for what God intends it to say rather than what I intend it to say. So that's why we ought to be a people of the book, challenging ourselves and praying before we get into God's word that we wouldn't read it for confirmation of what we want, but for revelation of what God wants. So 
Let's wrap up with prayer. Some of you are going to pick up kids. Uh, those, I think we can stick around for a few minutes, have further discussion as needed. God, would you help us to know what you want and to submit our desires to your intentions for us, doing so because you are authoritative in our life as our creator and because your plans for us are good, for our good, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.